1: And it's certainly true that during the American Revolution, there were some British soldiers who did some bad things, but it's not fair to then characterize all the British soldiers as being all bad all the time.
0: That's Journal of the American Revolution editor Don N. Haggist talking about his new book, Noble Volunteers, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of We Could Perceive No Sign of Them, Failed Colonies in North America, 1526-1689, to 1689, by David MacDonald. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution editor, Don N. Hagist talking about his new book, Noble Volunteers, The British Soldiers Who Fought the American Revolution. Don is a three-time guest on the program, including this episode, uh, and you see his work regularly on the Journal of the American Revolution website, www.allthingsliberty.com. Even if he doesn't write the article, uh, Don is a very hands-on editor, Uh, He works with our writers, he helps them in many ways, always offering constructive criticism. Um, And he really is one of the driving factors and individuals uh, that make the Journal of the American Revolution what it is. He's also a prolific author, and I must say, as a historian myself, uh, Don's latest book, the one we'll be discussing today... In my opinion, is probably his best work yet. We go into great detail in this interview about what life was like for the average British soldier fighting in the New World. There are a lot of generalities in the way we think about British soldiers fighting here in North America. Uh, and Don's research immaculately shed some very, very... Uh, Much-needed light, we can say, on these topics. Who these men were, where they came from, why they did what they did, what life was like for them. It really gives you a fresh, new understanding of the war, which really is what we here at the Journal of the American Revolution really strive to provide anyway. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Don Hagist. Don Hagist, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: What inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, well, this is a book that I've actually always wanted to write. Um, I've been doing research on British soldiers ever since I was a teenager. And I got interested in, I've been always interested in military history, but I've always found the most compelling things are the personal stories so whether, no matter what time period I'm reading about, I like to read um, autobiographical accounts and memoirs and things. And looking at the American Revolution, there just wasn't a lot of information available to me on who the individuals were in the British Army. There's some amount of material out there about the officers, but not so much about the rank-and-file soldiers. So... As I started to learn about it, and I had a lot of very good fortune to have people steer me in the right direction very early on to primary sources and was able to discover that it was possible to learn the names of individual soldiers and some things about some of them. So with most things you study, the more you learn, eventually you start realizing that, gee, you're able to answer other people's questions. And over time, wow, you're sometimes the only person who can answer some the questions. And that's when it's time to think about writing a book. Um, So I wanted to do this particular book for a long time, but had never made the decision to get started on it. And again, good fortune shines on me. Sometimes I was at giving a talk and my publisher happened to be in the audience and it was a talk about demographics and the British army. And I, usually talk about some individual soldiers and things like that in these talks. And after it was over a couple of days later, I got a letter in the mail and, and this was only a few years ago, but still the publisher was dignified enough to send an actual letter. And he said, I would like you to do a book about the kinds of things you talked about in that talk. And, and I realized, okay, this is my time. You know, I've, I've waited my whole life for this moment, literally, because this is the thing I had studied and been compiling information on for decades, and all of a sudden somebody asked me to write a book about it. So it was time.
0: What do you feel is the biggest misconception today about redcoats fighting in the Revolutionary War?
1: That's a terrific question, and it, it's sometimes hard for me to single one out because it, it, it's really amazing to me that on the one hand you'll hear people talk about, oh, you know, the American Patriots took on the best army in the world, but then if you ask them to describe people in that, what they call the best army in the world, they'll come up with all kinds of crazy things about how, um, how bad that army was, and right away, it's like, does that really make sense that the best army in the world was composed of people who you're almost making caricatures out of, who were uh, dragged off the streets unwillingly to serve in the army and that were poorly trained and that didn't know how to aim their guns and whatnot. But of, of all the, I think the most common misconception is that service in the British army was somehow compulsory, that men could be forced to serve in the army. And for the most part, the men in the British army and the American revolution were volunteers. There was a very brief period in the middle for about two years during this eight year war when it was possible for people who were not volunteers to get into the army, but the numbers of them were very few. So I think that's the biggest misconception for me is that, um, the service in the army was compulsory when in fact it wasn't. For the most part, the British army was an all volunteer force and most of the soldiers who joined it, joined it to serve as to serve in the army as a career rather than just for some temporary part of their lives.
0: You begin writing in your book about a very important term, animosity. Uh, what does that mean at this time? Um,
1: well, to really understand the animosity between Americans, I'll use the term American throughout this talk just to distinguish between the citizens of Great Britain and citizens of the American colonies. Of course, you can say, well, they were all British subjects before the war began, but, but to make it easy, um, the charters for the, colon- for the American colonies, these are the, the legal documents that the British government drew up to say that the colonies could exist, generally included clauses that said that the colonies could provide for their own defense, and they also said that the colonies could charge their own taxes within the colony and to do whatever they needed, including paying for their own cents. So people living in the colonies rightly felt that their defense of their colony was their own responsibility. And if the British army had to come in for something that might be to defend, say the borders of the colony against an invasion from France or Spain. Um, but in the 17 17- in the late 1760s, rather, the British government sent soldiers into Boston to help enforce some new taxation laws. And there was some very good, sensible grounding for why those taxation laws existed that I don't have time to get into here. But the idea for citizens in Boston, in particular, of soldiers being in this city, which was well within the interior of the colony of Massachusetts was very much to them against their charter and against their way of life it, it seems to them to be the British government overstretching their bounds by putting soldiers among the citizens soldiers should be out protecting the borders, not living right in a city with with its citizens. so the animosity was immediate. The um, citizens of Boston highly resented the presence of the soldiers, and they Stopped at nothing to show their animosity toward the toward the soldiers, and so the first there are actually two chapters in this book that deal quite a lot with that to show just how tense things were between the soldiery and the citizenry in America before hostilities even broke out.
0: How did the British Army recruit soldiers during this time? What kind of man did they typically seek out?
1: Oh, okay. So I've already said that the British Army was, for the most part, an all-volunteer force. So um, when war began in America, all of the soldiers who were in America already and all of the soldiers who were sent to America because of war started, these were all volunteers. None of these soldiers joined the Army to go to war. They just joined the Army as a career, and then a war began. And it's a pretty important distinction to make um, because later there were some changes because there was a war going on and how the army recruited and what kind of men they looked for. So we have to think of the soldiers who were in America as being soldiers who joined the army at peacetime. They They joined the army as a career. Some may have joined during a previous war, but by this time, most of them joined in times of peace. So the army was looking... For men who had, were pretty good physical specimens to be a soldier at the time, you had know, to be able to do things like walk 20 miles a day with a with a knapsack and carrying a musket with you and what have you, and be able to sleep on the ground all summer. Um, so they looked for men who were in good physical condition. They looked for men who were fully grown. So often in the recruiting literature, you'll see them call for men who are between the ages of 17 and 25. Now, this wasn't a government regulation, any regiment. Each regiment did its own recruiting. So rather than enlist in the army and then be sent to a regiment, you could go and find a recruiting party for the regiment you wanted to join and enlist with them. And every regiment could make its own decision about which men it would accept into its ranks. So although you, there are some generalities that I talk about in the book a lot, um, there was certainly no singular standard by which that all recruits met. So although the Army wanted men who were fully grown or close to fully grown, well, sometimes a 15-year-old might be close to fully grown, but sometimes a man's not fully grown until they're 20, what have you. So the recruiting officer has to use some judgment who's going to be a good specimen, but more than that, they want men who are going to thrive in the army, which offers them a somewhat of a transient environment. A regiment might spend five or six years in great Britain doing different kinds of duties and then be sent overseas for five to 10 years and then come back. So, A good example comes from a recruiting poster of the 33rd Regiment of Foot that says that they were looking for, um, one moment, they were looking for able-bodied young men, uh, any able-bodied young man who is fired with ambition, has a roving disposition, and whose spirit soars above the dull sameness of staying at home. So we're very, living in an age when tradesmen might pick up a trade like weaving, which really doesn't give them a lot of opportunities to travel, a lot of opportunities to do anything exciting. And young men, a young man with a roving disposition, he might be reading some of the popular literature of the age about travel overseas. If he pursues a trade like a bricklayer or a weaver. He may never have an opportunity to do anything but that in his local area, whereas the army suddenly offers an opportunity to go get on a ship and cross the ocean and live in some exotic place. He might be sent to Gibraltar. He might be sent to India. He might be sent to America and spend a few years there. Maybe he'll find a wife in one of these exotic places. Who knows? So and the Army offers the kinds of opportunities that the trades and the common labor in Great Britain at the time did not offer for young men.
0: You've mentioned that a lot of this changes on the regimental level. Uh, what did basic training look like for them? Was there something like that?
1: This is another great question, and this um if I can keep talking about, the book, Noble Volunteers, over and over again. Um, I broke the book into sections dealing with the peacetime army. So this is the army as it existed before the war began, and the army that went to war in America. All of these soldiers enlisted in times of peace, and as such, they went through a certain kind of process. To be trained and integrated into their regiments. After the war began, some aspects of that process changed. So soldiers who joined the army during the war may have gone through quite a different process than soldiers who joined the army in peacetime. The big difference is that I've already said that each regiment did its own recruiting, but a regiment, say, that's stationed in Edinburgh, they might send their recruiting parties to local areas and recruit locally. And then they get sent the next year to Dublin and they start recruiting in the Dublin area. But usually within a few weeks of um, enlisting with a recruiting party, the man is with his regiment and he's immediately getting trained first in very simple things like hygiene, how to keep himself clean, how to walk and carry himself with the bearing of a soldier. After he learns things that seem simple enough, like how to stand at attention, how to march in step, how to keep time, just how to stand still and pay attention for long periods of time, how to keep himself and his clothing clean, after three or four weeks of that sort of training, then he gets a fire lock. He he gets a musket. He starts learning how to do the infantry drill and how to load and fire the weapon and what have you. The peacetime soldier starts getting this stuff as soon as he joins his regiment. At wartime, the regiment might already be overseas in America, but they still have recruiting parties in Great Britain. So then things change a little bit. The man joins his recruiting party. He might stay with that recruiting party for several weeks, maybe even months, and then get sent to a place called the depot, of which there are one to about four or five of them. A number I should know, but I don't exactly. There's a depot in Chatham outside London. There's a depot in Portsmouth on the South Coast. Um, There's a depot in Cork in Ireland. There's a depot in Scotland. And these are places where recruits from all the different regiments are sent. And at the depot, there's one officer from each of the regiments. And again, these are just officers who were back in, their regiments are already in America, but they're back in Great Britain on recruiting duty. And there, at the depot, they start learning, they get a uniform for the first time, they get a firelock for the first time, they learn how to march as an individual, then how to march in small groups, and how to march in larger groups together, and what have you. So, It may be up to two years between the time the man enlists and the time he finally gets on a ship and comes to America to actually join his regiment. So we see some different types of training depending on whether the man joined in peacetime or whether he joined in wartime. But it always starts with just the basic things about hygiene and how to take care, how to keep yourself healthy, how to keep your clothing clean, which... uh, a country laborer might not have a good sense of, and then when you finally have a fair amount of skill in marching and standing at attention and following orders, then finally the soldier gets a gun for the first time, which again, a soldier in England, a young man in England may never have actually seen a real gun before, never mind handled one. And he takes several weeks learning how to handle the weapon well. Eventually he starts learning how to actually shoot it and what have you.
0: One of the new sort of um, interesting trends on social media is a lot of firearms experts revisiting uh, the firelock muskets of of the 18th century and really putting them through their paces. And even though the Firearm has a reputation for being clumsy. Uh, what we're finding today in the hands of the right shooter is that they they can actually be pretty accurate. Um, so could you talk about the average soldier's proficiency with the Firelock? How accurate was it and how effective were they with it?
1: Well, there certainly was a learning curve with it because by modern standards, it is somewhat of a clumsy weapon. It weighs a little over 10 pounds closer to 15 pounds when it has a bayonet on it. So, and it's four and a half feet long. So it takes some skill to learn how to handle this thing dexterously, but that's part of what the training is all about. One of the few aspects of training that was standardized in the British Army at the time was a thing called the manual of arms or the manual exercise. And this was a set of procedures for handling The musket, I'm going to use the term firelock, which was from the 18th century, and uh, you'll hear that, and it comes to me very naturally to call it a firelock. So the soldier would learn how to handle the firelock in certain ways, how to hold it on his shoulder while marching, how to move it from the shoulder down to the ground, how to lay it down on the ground if necessary, how to put the bayonet on it the particular sequence of actions to load and fire the weapon properly. And these things, this basic manual of arms was standardized for the army. So every soldier at peacetime, once he's ready and with his regiment, has learned his basics in wartime when he goes to a depot, he learns the manual of arms. And the point of this, this standardized way to hold the musket doing all different things, it's not so much to replicate this on the battlefield and do everything in battle in a very specific choreographed way. It's so that handling this gun will be completely second nature. So that if you have to do something like run and climb over a fence while you're holding the fire lock, it'll just be so natural to be holding the firelock in the proper way all the time that you won't have to think about that. You'll be able to think about how to climb over the fence. <laughs> um, so these three were trained very rigorously. And among the things that was trained was how to load and aim and fire the weapon. There's a great piece of mythology that says, and, and it, I don't know where it started, but it's gotten very popular, that British soldiers weren't taught how to aim. And they were, in fact, taught how to aim. And we know this because all you have to do is read the manual, exerc- the manual exercise that they use for training pretty easy to find the text of this document still today, and it says very explicitly when you come to the the aiming position to hold the weapon high on your shoulder, to close your left eye and sight with your right eye down the barrel. I'm going to have the eyes reversed on that, but to close one eye and sight with the other eye down the barrel. There's a little piece at the muzzle of the British land pattern firelock that today reenactors call a bayonet lug because when you put a bayonet on the weapon, it it locks onto this little piece that projects up from the muzzle. But if you read the 18th century military documents that describe the firelock, this little thing at the muzzle is called a sight. And and yet, people still will say, oh no, they weren't taught to aim the weapon. Well, it has a sight right on it. It may not be a highly calibrated sight, but the weapon, the barrel of the weapon is about three and a half feet long. So they're looking down a pretty long straight thing already to cite in. And soldiers in America practiced target practice pretty regularly. This is another thing that is often overlooked because there's um there's some very there's a very good book about the training of the British Army in the eighteenth century. The book came out in the nineteen eighties and it's one of the standards um, on the subject, not a lot of books on this subject out there. And it talks about how rare it was for soldiers to fire live ammunition. They might fire blanks a lot, but firing with actual bullets, which were fairly expensive, was rare. Well, that information from that book has caught on. The problem is that that book is looking at the 18th century as a whole, and it takes some particular um, specific parcels of information throughout the century that are focused on the army at times of peace. The British army in America in 1774 and 1775 may have been in America in order to keep peace, but they knew darn well it was possible they were going to have to fight a war. So doing the sensible thing, they practiced war fighting. And among the things they did was spent a lot of time practicing firing with live ammunition firing at targets, both as as individual soldiers firing at targets, as platoons firing at targets, and as companies of men firing at targets, all with live ammunition. Um, Again, in, in the book we talk about this, we can show examples where regiments in Boston between the beginning of December of 1774 and the middle of April 1775 when war broke out an average soldier went out and practiced target practice about 10 times in that four-month period and fired about 80 rounds during that period. Now, if you're firing with a modern semi-automatic weapon, 80 rounds isn't a lot. But if you're ever fired a black powder weapon, 80 rounds is quite enough to gain a pretty high amount of proficiency at target practice with that weapon. By the time British soldiers went to war in America in April of 1775, almost all of them who were involved had done quite a bit of actual target practice with their weapons, not just shooting live ammunition at random, but through shooting at specific targets in the distance. Um, and I, I put a lot of emphasis on that in the book because we can't continue to have the idea that these soldiers weren't taught that the weapons were more effective if you actually aim at what you're trying to shoot at.
0: Were these men well-fed and well-supplied during the war? Uh, maybe talk a bit about, if you could, the logistics of feeding this army.
1: Um, there's a good question. It's a, There's a two-part question when we talk about logistics. One is the logistics uh, that the British military as a whole faced in keeping an army fed and fit for service when it was overseas. That's an aspect of logistics that I don't get into very much in this book because one, there's some other books about it and two is it's just a big subject in itself. So I focus more on the logistics of what the individual soldier was liable to experience in terms of his hygiene and his diet and his clothing, um, what kinds of things kept him supplied. So to get to your specific question about food and rations, there was a prescribed ration that the soldier could expect, and there was a, different, there were a few different um, categories of rations. So there were rations that the soldier expects to have, receive when he's in garrison, and there's what he expects to receive when he's on campaign. Usually that's about half and half of the year. So he's going to be in garrison from December until May and then on campaign from June to November approximately. And that's true either in peace or in war. In peacetime campaigning just means your regiment's out camped in the countryside rather than in a barracks somewhere. When the soldier's in garrison, he's going to get about three pounds of food per day And it's broken down into a pound of meat and a pound of bread and a few ounces of butter and maybe some rice or some this or that. There's a few other odds and ends in there. Um, And even that, now there's two kinds of um, rations that the soldier might have on Garrison. One is salt provisions. So it's preserved food that has been packed for shipping overseas. That's going to be salted meat. The bread might be in terms of flour, or it might be in uh, biscuit, which people like to call hard tack, even though that term didn't come out until later. But this is bread that's been baked and dried with the intention of soaking it again before you actually eat it, not to try to eat it when it's hard as a rock. Uh, Dried peas and a few other things that are food that is preserved, and it has a lot of salt content in it in the days before refrigeration. And then there's fresh provisions. So the army gets a bunch of cattle and they slaughter the cattle and you get fresh beef instead of salted beef. During times in a garrison, your diet might be about half and half salt provisions and fresh provisions. So you might get two or three times a week, fresh meat, and two or three times a week, salted meat. Um, Once the army goes on campaign, then the ration changes to simply a pound and a half of meat and a pound and a half of bread per day. And that can be supplemented by forage. So anything else you can find, which usually is in the form of crops. Um, Now that's the general expectation. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about variations on this diet. So you get a pound of beef per day when you're in garrison, but if the beef isn't available you might get pork instead, or sometimes you might get salted fish instead, or a number of different things depending on what the army was able to provide. Sometimes the provisions might come from captured ships, Um, sometimes they might be scams locally, fish in particular was pretty easy to get on the coast of uh, in the coastal areas of America where the British army spent most of its time. On campaign, you can supplement this diet of meat and bread with all different kinds of forage, whether it be greens that are found in the forest or crops that are scavenged from local farms and fields. And we talk a lot about this, this, the use of fresh vegetables as part of the supplement of the diet during the summer months. Um, So overall, the diet was highly varied, even though we have a standard ration. This is another case where just looking at a singular piece of information, um, the ration of a soldier was this, can give the impression that things
0: were very standardized, when in fact they were highly variable depending on the time and the place. This army is anything but a monolith. It's a multi-ethnic snapshot uh, of a very big British world. Uh, Talk about the diversity of the British army, if you could. Well, we
1: have to think about the British... Great Britain as being an empire during its age. So it's not a small island, you know, Um, it's not the English army. It's the British army. That's the big distinction. So even though probably a little over half of the men in the army were English, that leaves the other half to be Scottish and Irish, and there's a lot of ethnic differentiation between them and the English during this time period. And then there's also some other people from British colonies who have enlisted in the army, and those include Americans and Canadians. Uh, They might include men born in places like Gibraltar. And then once the war began, the British government um, it, it's pretty familiar that the British government contracted with German states to provide troops for the American Revolution. We usually call these, generically, we call them Hessians, even though they also came from uh, Brunswick and um, some other provinces in Germany, or in the German states, which was not a unified country at the time. So we have these established army regiments from German states being sent to Great Britain and being sent to the American War for Great Britain. But the British Army also sent a recruiting officer or a party of recruiting officers in to recruit Europeans to serve in British regiments. And something around 2,000 of the men who served in the British Army, particularly in 1776 and 1777, were Europeans who got integrated into the ranks of the British regiments um, I spend a lot of time talking about this in the book because it raised some interesting challenges. A lot of these men didn't speak English, but the British army could handle people who didn't speak English because they were already recruiting heavily in Ireland and Scotland. And these, uh, these were places where a lot of people didn't speak English either. They spoke uh, Scottish Gaelic or Irish Gaelic. And yet, the British Army was able to integrate them into the ranks. So having Europeans who also didn't speak English was a challenge, but it was a challenge that the Army knew how to deal with.
0: Was a career in the British Army one that provided for a legitimate advancement for the average soldier? I guess I'm asking, does the average soldier have the means to truly make a career if he chose, or is that something that's more uh, left to the upper classes?
1: Well, now when you say a legitimate career, that's it depends on what you mean by legitimate. Um, it's important to recognize that for the most part, when people joined the army during this time period, they didn't join the army for a four-year hitch or a two-year stint or or a tour. They just joined the army as a job, in the same way that you might take any job today. You don't usually start a new job and say, well, I'm just going to start this job and work at it for two years and go into some different field. Um, Similarly, when you enlisted in the Army, for the most part, soldiers enlisted between the ages of 20 and 25. Now, the, the range was much greater, but the majority enlisted between 20 and 25. They had already been working in their lives since they were probably 10 or 12 years old. So they had a lot of work experience under their belts in something before making the choice to join the army. They joined the army with no expectation of leaving the army until the army discharges them because they're no longer physically fit for service. So in that sense, most of the people who joined the army went in with every intention of making it a career. Once you're in the army, the chances of advancement are pretty slim. And it's very common to find soldiers who served 30- and 40-year careers as a private soldier. That was completely within expectations. About 20, I have the statistic in the book, around 22 or 23% of soldiers became non-commissioned officers, at least for some part of their career. And there, too, if you serve, become a non-commissioned officer, you get a boost in pay. Um, if you become a corporal, well, corporal was what I'll call somewhat of a volatile rank in that it was not unusual for men to be appointed as corporals, serve for two, three, four, five months, and then be reduced back to private soldiers again. And maybe a few years later, they'll get appointed as a corporal again, or maybe not. Once a man becomes a sergeant, that rank is a lot less volatile. By the time a soldier after maybe 10 years in the army becomes a sergeant he's much more likely to remain a sergeant for the rest of his career and again there the pay is better in general men who become non-commissioned officers are literate men and which is right away rules out about half of the soldiers in the army from from even having that aspiration Um, almost all of the men who join the army serve either as a private, a corporal, or a sergeant, or a drummer for their entire career. Some men do, in fact, join as drummers for their entire career. Um, Again, the majority of soldiers who stay in the Army for their careers are privates for the entire time. About a quarter of them become non-commissioned officers, and they stay in this role until they're no longer fit for service. A very small portion of the sergeants get advanced into a commissioned rank, so they become commissioned officers. It's quite rare, rare, I mean about less than half of 1%. Uh, and I have some statistics in the book, a lot of examples of men who follow this career path, but it certainly is not anything that an average enlistee would aspire to or see as a probable path. So is it a legitimate career? Yes, absolutely. In fact, after the war began, there was a new recruiting law that said you can enlist for only three years as long as the war is over at the end of three years. A lot of men who enlisted under these terms, when the end of the American War came, they were discharged because their service obligation was over, and they turned around and immediately re-enlisted. In the army, So this, again, shows that not only was it a legitimate career, but for quite a high portion of men, it was an attractive enough career that when they were told, you don't have to be a soldier anymore, they said, I know I don't have to be, but I still want to be, and they re-enlisted. Um, so the answer there is yes, it's a very legitimate career. It's not a career that we think of as having advancement, but it certainly is a career that has stability. And for the 18th century labor and class, stability was a very valuable thing. And it made the army an attractive option.
0: In your research, what did most men do when they uh, ended their service in the British military? What did you find?
1: Uh, that's a terrific question, too. And I, uh, I, I just touched on that a little bit, and that when a lot of men, if they were They had, in fact, joined under a service obligation, which was only a wartime thing, and they were told at the end of the war that they were allowed to be discharged. Some of them simply re-enlisted and stayed in the army. So bigger question is what happened to a man at the end of his career more than what happened at the end of this particular war. Again, most of these people are in the war until a man might enlist in his late teens or early 20s and then serve into his late 40s or early 50s. And then he gets discharged and then he's got some options. The soldiers who were discharged at the end of the war in America, one option they had was to just take whatever money the army owed them and walk away and do whatever they wanted to do. Um, And some men did that. It's very difficult for researcher to trace these men because once their army service obligation was over, the army didn't keep any more records about them. But we know from other sources that some British soldiers did in fact stay and settle in America, probably somewhere about three or four percent of those who served in the war. Some of the men were eligible for land grants in Canada. After the war began, we the army needed to recruit more men. One of the incentives in recruiting was When the war ends, you'll get 100 acres of land in North America. Now, at the time that law was passed to offer 100 acres of land, it was assumed that that land would be in some place like Virginia or Pennsylvania or New York. As it turned out, when the war ended, that land was in Nova Scotia. But if you're a Scottish tenant farmer trying to till rocky soil in bad weather and you're completely at the mercy of your landlord, the idea of getting 100 acres of land in Nova Scotia where you can till rocky soil in bad weather, but you own that land, that's a pretty attractive proposition. So some soldiers got land grants. Some soldiers just left the Army. But one other thing that the Army offered no other career during this era had to offer was a pension. So if you joined the army and were either disabled in the service so that you could no longer earn a living, or you had served at least 20 years, it wasn't a fixed number, but 20 years is typical, um, and then been discharged because you were no longer fit for service, so there was a pretty good chance that the army would award you a pension and the pension was about 5 eighths of your military pay so it wasn't a lot of money it was a subsistence income but it was a steady income and again if you think about the time period and somebody like a blacksmith who works as a blacksmith for 20 30 years until he's no longer physically able to do that kind of work that's it for him he doesn't have any source of income after that but a soldier who does the same takes the same choice soldiers for 30 years, until he's no longer fit to do that, he can get a pension and have a guaranteed income for the rest of his life. So this, too, made the army a fairly attractive career.
0: What do you hope this book can accomplish uh, when it's all said and done?
1: I want this book to humanize individual soldiers who fought in this war. It's far too easy when looking at a war to characterize it in terms of good guys versus bad guys, and then make the assumption that, well, if our side is the good guys, the other side must be the bad guys, and people fighting for the bad guys must be bad, right? So let's think about all the ways that they're bad. And it's certainly true that during the American Revolution, there were some British soldiers who did some bad things. But it's not fair to then characterize all the British soldiers as being all bad all the time. Simply wasn't the case. Um, And we also talked about this whole issue of the characterization of soldiers. If, If we want to characterize the British Army as being the best in the world and the American Army took on the British Army that was so good, it helps to look a little bit about the kinds of things that made the British Army good. And a lot of it was the training and the character of the individual soldiers. They fought exceptionally well on the battlefield. The war lasted eight years. It took a long time for Americans to I'm going to say defeat this army, but really it was to bring the British government to the point of no longer choosing to wage a war because in many ways our army had been very successful in America. Um, So but mostly I want to get it to look at the war as being fought by people. There were people on both sides, not just a bunch of uniforms, not just a bunch of automatons, but individuals who were each there for their own reasons, each had their own experiences. And, uh, and it does us no good to oversimplify a war just to look at it in terms of the high-level principles that led to it being fought and led to it ending. and and think about and have some respect for the individuals who fought in it, regardless of what their role was.
0: Don Hagist, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.